The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum and welcome to the Book Club Show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imrana Mahmood and we are here with another show, an amazing guest and a brilliant book. And I'm really, really looking forward to having um, some really important um, conversations today. Um, we are in the, well, I should say online studio today um, with um, Sahema Manzul Khan. So Sahema Manzul Khan is a writer, poet, educator and activist disrupting ideas of history, race, knowledge, and violence. Her poetry performances based on her book, Post-Colonial Banter, have millions of views online, and she was the National Roundhouse Poetry Slam runner-up in 2017. Sahema has written for The Guardian and Galdem, and her work has featured across radio and TV stations. She has been commissioned to write plays by theatres, including the Royal Court. So that is an amazing, amazing um, introduction to our beautiful guest. And we are discussing um, Suhaima's book, Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. And definitely we know from the recent, um, you know, if you're listening to news and um, the media and et cetera, you know, um, there is a big, big um, push at the moment for us to recognize um, Islamophobia and its impacts. More um, so, I think, I, you know, at a government level as well. So hopefully today's show will give you a bit of insight into um, the book itself, a bit more, um, I guess, understanding of um, what Islamophobia is and how we really need to um, challenge, I guess, the institutions of power and, and, and start making, you know, hopefully a positive difference. So. I'm going to say assalamu alaikum to Sahima. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. Um, how has your morning been so far? It's been good. It's uh, been busy. I had COVID last week, so I'm catching up on classes and things that I've missed. So I'm trying to cram everything into my mornings at the moment. But it's yeah. been good. How about you? Yes, no, alhamdulillah. I've been, we've been okay. And I think, um, yeah, we kind of think we've getting coming out of this pandemic and this idea of getting back to normal but you know it's not it's not quite there and you know this whole idea of new normal is is definitely something I guess that it's an interesting conversation to have um but yes yeah, so coming on um to your book Tangled in Terror um so you know I'm really looking forward to speaking um about um this book today but I guess the starting point really for our listeners I wanted to know um because obviously that the the, the biography I shared you're a writer, you're a poet, um, you know, you, you've been writing for theatre. What has kind of inspired um, yeah, you to get into writing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I don't have like a really straightforward answer. I think writing is, like I'm sure a lot of writers will say, um, you know, it's something that I've always done, often for myself. That's, I guess that's how I've always processed my feelings and my thoughts. I've always been a journal keeper. Um, I've always kind of, you know, note, my notes app in my phone is just full of so many random things. I've always loved reading. I think that there's always a clear connection there. Um, you know, Matilda's my favourite childhood film. I think like those kind of classic tropes, I guess. But I think... Writing is probably the place where I feel like I can articulate myself the best. And so I think initially writing kind of for a public audience, you know, for a wider audience was it was a desire to explain things, to explain things that I felt weren't being explained properly, um, to kind of uh, ca cast a light on or reveal the things that kind of it felt were being brushed over and obscured. And often that was to do with racism, that was to do with Islamophobia, that was often to do with my own experiences of those things. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, I've kind of seen that you know, different types of writing do different things as well. And that's really exciting to me because a poem might reach some somebody um, that isn't reached by, you know, an academic article that's written in, in kind of, you know, difficult jargon. So I think writing has a lot of power um, and it, it does move people and it changes ideas. And mm -hmm. for me, if we're trying to change the world, then, you know, you have to change people's minds and you have to change, that's where, that's where you start. So it's, I guess it's kind of basic inspiration, but I do just feel like writing is there's so many different things it can do. And I think we've all read something, haven't we, in our lives that's moved us. And so that, to me, the, the, the fact that it can do something that powerful mm. makes me want to, you know, keep trying to, to do something with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And because there's a form of um, it being really accessible, isn't it? So, you know, and and that's what's so amazing, the fact that, you know, wh whether it is through poetry or whether it's through an academic paper or, you know, through a book itself. So, I mean, even in terms of your writing journey, obviously you, you were part of um, the book, you know, Fly, Girl, Fly Guide Girls to University. Um, then obviously the, there's your poetry collection, Post-Colonial Banter. But what was specific in um, the, the reason for, for this current book now, Tangled yeah. in Terror? 
So actually, this is part of a series of books um, that Pluto Press have done. <clears throat> it's called mm -hmm. the Outspoken Series. And the idea of this whole series for them is that it's for young people, by young people. A lot of the authors of the series are kind of activists themselves. And they're supposed to be really accessible. That's that's the key thing about these books. These are not academic books. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually it was Pluto who approached me, you know, kind of being like, you know, you are young, you're an activist, you know, you're a writer. Like, do you would you be interested in writing about Islamophobia for this series? And I thought that was an amazing um, idea just because I don't actually think, and I mean, I, I, would, I would ask anyone listening, can you think of a single book about Islamophobia that is not an academic book, that is widely accessible, and that kind of covers all the different facets of it? And, and when I thought about that question, I was like, no, there's absolutely nothing out there. I've never grown up with a kind of rigorous analysis and a clear kind of picture of what is it that we're facing? Um, whether you're Muslim or not Muslim, you know, I think there's just no real, Islamophobia is simply kind of this, mm. it's like a, a moral deficiency. It's something that's not great. It's not, you shouldn't really be mean to Muslims. That's not nice. We know that it manifests in verbal harassment. We know that it manifests sometimes in physical attacks. But that's really the limit of, of where the, the conversation is, and at least in the mainstream. And so I think it is really, it, it's necessary. This kind of, I just felt like this book is necessary. We, we deserve we really actually deserve a, a bigger analysis because with a bigger analysis, then you can start to hold institutions to account. You can start to kind of draw connections between the different parts of the establishment or industries that uphold Islamophobia. So I just felt like it was a really important um, kind of, it's almost like a, it's something, it's a service that we all need. It's a tool that we all need. And, and that felt really like necessary to me. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and you know, because I think about myself and, you know, having, um, you know, experienced that transition, you know, especially around, you know, 9-11. Um, and actually, you're right, you know, if, if you, I guess it's only just coming to my mind now that there's nothing really, or there hasn't been anything out there, you know, and because that's what we need sometimes, we, we need to be able to um, have something we can well, not yeah not just relate to and I know sometimes using the word empower is really problematic but you know it, it is that because you, when you see somebody or um whether it's Pluto Press or any other kind of platform really kind of championing that kind of writing you know yeah it's like you said we, we absolutely deserve it and and you know it's such an important an important time I think you know for, for this yeah. book to be coming out as well um now obviously you know in terms of in, Inspire FM you know we have predominantly um Muslim audience and but you know I never want to make the assumption that yeah we all understand Islamophobia yeah we might have experienced it but but just for context a little bit you know can you share the history of maybe what where you know where Islamophobia maybe has come come out of and, and this idea and narrative of you know that we have Muslims being a threat yeah, no, I think and the thing is, I think it is like you say, actually, whether we're Muslim or not, I think there's an assumption that we kind of know what it is. And, that, and that's that's really at the heart of this book is that actually I don't know that we do. And so often when we talk about the history of Islamophobia, people start at 9-11, right? And they kind of go that, you know, 9-11 is the moment that Islamophobia kind of was birthed. And what I think is more important to focus on and what I try and do in this book is say, actually, let's go further back in time, because for me, Islamophobia is just one kind of manifestation of what colonialism has always done and always did. And so when I try and trace this history, what I say is, look, let's go as far back as sometimes when we think about racism, any type of racism, we kind of assume that racism exists because races exist, right? Because we're split into races. Mm -hmm. But the argument I try and make is that actually it's the other way around. Racism is justified by inventing different races, by saying, look, these people look like this, they have different cultures, they have different behaviors, they have different um, ways of being, and therefore they are lesser than us, they're less human, they're less valuable, whatever, and therefore we can invade their lands, we can steal their resources, whatever. And so Islamophobia is actually, if you think about it, it's just a manifestation of that same type of history. And so, you know, you, you've got um, kind of historians who have traced this, whether that's through Orientalism, imperialism, the characterization of Muslim people and Muslim places throughout history, far be before 9-11, as, um, you know, barbaric, as kind of um, excessive, as patriarchal, um, Muslim women as, you know, submissive or as exotic as kind of the, the harems of Muslim women. Um, the, all the kind of tropes that we hear today about Muslims that we're quite familiar with in news stories and tabloids and whatever else, they actually go, you can go hundreds of years back and you can find them. And I think that's really fascinating because it tells us that this is not just something new and this is something that's always actually justified, um, whether it's foreign policy goals or whether it's just the way that the West wants to characterize itself, Muslims have often been a foil to the West. So 
um, you know, you can talk about Islam and you talk about Muslims as being backwards in order to say, look how modern and um, kind of democratic and whatever else we are. And so Muslims just become in a way, um, uh, you know, a, a mirror for the West, a way for the West to kind of say what they're not. And we see that to this day, right? Uh, and, you know, Muslims are terrorists and therefore the violence that is perpetrated by the West or Western states, that's just security, that's just peacekeeping, that's just democracy, that's just liberty. And so I think tracing that longer history is really important. I mean, there's, there's way more that I can say, and I think we must always connect Islamophobia to um, anti-Black racism and to kind of all of the different manifestations of racism that exist because these things are not um, isolated and they're not disconnected. And it's by drawing that long history that I believe we can also um, actually resist Islamophobia from its roots. And that's something that's really important, right? Not just looking at the surface level, kind of tip of the iceberg um, ways that we see Islamophobia, but thinking, hang on, why does it exist? Who does it benefit? Who does it serve? And, that, and that's kind of the questions I'm really interested in. Yeah, and it's such a crucial point actually you've made that this this idea that it's that history is long, right? It goes really way, way back, and and that that constant, um, I guess, um, shedding light on on the link to you know colonialism and everything that that did do, and you know is currently still doing, right? Because it's still yeah. manifesting itself for sure. Um, now, you know, obviously we we know, especially you know, living in the UK, um, the government's um. I guess focus on like counter extremism and everything that that's kind of come with it, um, you know, because they they, they sh you know have this thing about we, it's international security, right? And obviously you, you speak about this in your book um, Tangled in Terror. Um, now, what you know, what can we do to kind of challenge this thing that oh, it's international security, so this is what we need. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we all, you know, I think many of your listeners will know and agree that we've been told that things that we've been told that this thing called international security um it is always the right thing to do and it's always justified even when we've seen m millions of people um killed um we've seen people's countries invaded we've seen drones dropped and we've seen so many more displaced right the current so-called refugee crisis where you're seeing you know just so many people fleeing from all parts of the world mm -hmm. often is, is directly connected to wars and invasions that are apparently um to make the world safer and more secure from violence. And so one of the kind of questions that I, I'm raising throughout my book, Tangled in Terror, is that in the name of keeping us safer, who has actually been made safe? Because most of the world's most marginalized, you know, people in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, you know, you name it, Syria, there's, they have all been made more unsafe. Um, lives have often been destroyed. And it seems really disingenuous to me that this is in the name of countering violence, because what that really tells me is that you've, you know, not you, but like the, the West or Western states have created a narrative that violence is a thing that is unique and na a natural disposition of Muslims, right? So even in the coverage we've seen recently of, you know, the war, Russia's war in Ukraine, we hear lots of um, media um, spokespeople kind of compare, making the comparison that this war matters because this isn't Afghanistan, this isn't Iraq, this isn't Syria. We can welcome these refugees because, in other words, they're not Muslim. And that's really fascinating to me because what it tells me is that we, the war on terror, the whole language of it, for, you know, 20 years of the war on terror has created this idea that Muslim people and Muslim places are deserving of violence and deserving of destruction and war because ultimately they're not really people. They're really all just suspects. They're really all just people who might one day be terrorists versus or compared to uh, people in the West who actually, their valuable lives, their lives that we see as, you know, grievable, as losable. And so this language of international security actually masks a really violent really oppressive project and and that's why i think we need to be really careful about the language that we use and we shouldn't just accept the terms of governments and we should ask well actually who who has been made safer is it actually just governments that have made themselves more secure against protest mm -hmm. is it actually um you know arms trades industries that sell drones and industries that sell surveillance technologies that have been made more secure in the name of saying they're protecting us mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's so important to, to interrogate it. And, you know, what you've mentioned about, you know, the current coverage of of um, the, you know, Ukraine and, and, and Russia in terms of journalists and, and the biases and the blatant racism, which is just being on like full display. I mean, it gets to a point where you just think it surely can't get any worse. And then it just gets more worse than you can, you can imagine. Oh, it's, it's like a parody, really, yeah. Yeah, it, honestly. And, and um, 
you know, and obviously you're speaking about governments and, and what is really the agenda, I guess. And, you know, again, it's something, you know, you, you touch on um, your book as well. And obviously we've got this big thing in terms of the prevent duty. Um, now, you know, if that's something that is, you know, for years since since it, it's, it's, its inception, it's been presented as this kind of um, means to eradicate extremism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously there's this thing that, you know, it's regardless of faith, the background, et cetera, but we know obviously that it targets specifically Muslims. Yeah. Um, but obviously at the same time, the point is, it is a statutory duty. So is there really a realistic way of, I guess, empowering colleagues or people that we know to, to counter the damage that the prevent duty is, is kind of committing at the moment? I think that's such a good question because, yeah, I think that the stage we've reached in the conversation around prevent is, is clear that it's completely, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's racist, it racially profiles. I think even just last week, the People's Review of Prevent was, pub- you know, launched and it documents, you know, in painstaking detail, like the ways in which prevent is not only racist, but, you know, it actually undermines safeguarding, it actually undermines like equality, protected characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. So the question you're asking, you know, what what can we actually do is a crucial one. And it's one that, you know, even in writing the book, I got to interview different people and kind of ask them their thoughts on this question. And I think ultimately, this is a matter of like, coming together uh, when you're trying to repeal a piece of legislation that is legal right that as you've said is a legal duty it's really difficult to convince people that you know well just um you know don't don't participate in it because people feel like well you know my job is on the line my you know i can't just i've got bills to pay i've got family to feed etc etc and i think the point here is that we need to actually this needs to be like a a first a shift that we make in in language like the ways we talk about prevent we should never concede that it's acceptable and secondly we can all make demands right whether or not you have to legally uphold prevent or not you can make a demand that it should be repealed and you can come together with other people and so whether that's within unions whether that's beyond unions i think if we actually kind of spread that message that this is unacceptable that we refuse to um, be legally obliged to racially profile our students, our patients. Um, I think that that will shift things. Um, but ultimately, the, it, it's not. A, it's. I think we have to kind of move out of the, the bubble of it being like this is only affecting Muslims. That prevent is only a Muslim because I think sometimes the reason we're not getting a communal kind of really broad based um, resistance is this idea that well it's just it's like something that's just I don't know Muslims are saying it's affecting them. I don't know is it. But we need, actually need to say well yes it is Islamophobic but. Actually, it's not just that it's Islamophobic, it's that what are the far reaching consequences if you accept that teachers and that um, doctors and librarians and whatever else, that they are all actually, that they should all work for the state as spies, that we should all look out in, e- in one another, we should treat one another as suspects of potential future criminals. Um, what are the kind of ramifications of that for everyone more broadly? We've already seen prevent be used against environmental activists, student protesters, you know, anything basically that the government doesn't want. Mm-hmm. And so I think if people, don't make those larger connections, then we're, we're not going to really build a broad based kind of resistance. Um, but these are really live questions. And I think, you know, I, I don't have the answers to that specifically. But I, my, my intuition, my feeling is we have to keep just making the demand and we have to do it more and more collectively. Yeah. Yeah. And that's obviously where that collective voice is, is important. Because even if we're all just doing it at an individual level where we're kind of challenging it could be just having a conversation with a colleague or you know in your own you know socializing time I mean, whatever might come up it, it is just about I guess you know standing for justice I guess I mean I remember um this is years and years ago I, I did some work as a, as a clerk for a governing board and um a prevent officer had been invited in to do you know like a presentation etc and mm-hmm. and you know showed the governors this graph which had no that the, there was no labeled axes it was just one straight line showing oh yeah the number of children going off to syria no one questioned it and yeah. i was this is the head teacher and obviously other members of staff and you know and that was when it really drove home about yeah that you know if we, we can't que- if we're not questioning it or you know and teachers whether it's their own bias or whether they, they don't feel safe enough to mm-hmm. definitely you're right it has much more further or far-reaching consequences and that's a good point though as well just asking questions i think that that story you've just given is so symbolic of the broader logic of prevent which is that hey just believe that this kind of does prevent violence when actually all the science shows that it doesn't you know all these academics kind of say that this has no basis there's no peer-reviewed study that kind of says anything about this being justifiable and so actually if people don't feel kind of confident enough to like outright kind of condemn prevent actually asking those important questions to your colleagues like why do you you know where are you getting this from why have you not did you not hear that like this is completely discredited that that can also be a way sometimes if you if you're not if you're not entirely feeling confident to shift the conversation still 
Mm, absolutely no no definitely and 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 just kind of following now on from that so in in your book tangled in terror um i think it's chapter five and you kind of explore this um theme of british values right which is oh (laughs) as soon as i say those two words i i can't control (laughs) how i feel but um i guess the question really is and and i'm just going to link this actually to obviously a recent podcast um, by new york times serial then uh, uh, Brian Reed and Hamza Side, obviously, which is the Trojan horse um, affair, um, because obviously, the, the, you know, this idea of British values comes comes up in that and what that actually means. And I guess I wanted really your opinion. Um, firstly, what you thought maybe of the podcast if you listen to it, but also more, more kind of you know specifically this discourse around British values. You know, how has that I guess ex- exacerbated this you know counter extremism, which obviously we, we just spoke about before. Yeah. Firstly, the podcast, yes, I did listen and I thought it was, I mean, as with lots of people who listen, I think it was it, it was just gobsmacking, even though it wasn't surprising. You know, we all knew even at the time that this is completely just Islamophobia at play. But I think just going, you know, seeing the details of the fact that the letter behind the Trojan horse scandal was completely um, fake, that it was just, so, you know, so much like an interpersonal drama and that the government knew that, that Michael Gove was told by police that this is a bogus letter, we don't recommend you do anything. And he went ahead and was like, actually, I want to be as Islamophobic as possible and destroy people's lives. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating, actually. I think if you allow yourself to sit with that, the feeling I had was that this is so painful that our communities are so uncared for really ultimately that our children can just be left to have nothing and that pain is really like heavy on all of us i think and and really it's linked to to the second part of your question which is you know what has the impact been of the british values kind of narrative and we we will all know as as if you know if you're a muslim in this country you'll know that the impact of that narrative has been massive that now apparently you know learning british values is a kind of a necessary requirement for people to not become extreme extremism the only definition that you will find in government um kind of uh, papers of extremism itself is oh um you know people going against british values what are british values apparently democracy rule of law toleration these are values that the british government every day undermines itself right illegal wars illegal occupations deportation stripping people of citizenship making them stateless which is a direct violation of human rights like the list is endless of the ways that the government itself doesn't uphold these so-called values but what it really does is it means that as racialized people so people of color in this country in general we're now seen as constantly, um, you know, potentially, we, we our Britishness is always in question, right? And the ramifications of that aren't just like, oh, you know, you might be um, asked to, you know, you might be told go back where you came from, you know, that kind of standard racism. But the ramifications of that are bigger because the really what we're seeing is people's entire like uh, kind of place in this country coming into question, you know, do, do you even have a right to be here? Um, there was a report into social integration in 2016, 2017, I think, Louise Casey's report. And one of the really interesting lines in that that I always like to pick out is that she said that in areas where there are high concentration concentrations of ethnic minorities, um, people are less likely to develop British values. Now, what she doesn't say in the report is that in areas where there are high concentrations of white people or, you know, schools like private schools or, you know, areas that are majority white, people will be less likely to develop British values. So by virtue of not saying that, what she's implying is that if you are white in this country, you're born with these values and therefore you, you're never going to be deemed, uh, you know, a risk, uh, at risk of radicalization or a potential threat or criminal in the future. If you're a person of color in this country, whether or not you were born here, you are, you're constantly, um, this is a question mark around you, right? Like, do you really, like, do you really have a right to just live your life freely or should we always suspect you? And will you, will we always ask you to be constantly proving whether that's, you know, at school, whether it's at work, whether it's throughout your entire life? that you deserve to be here. And when the actual legal consequences exist in terms of you actually can't, you know, right now the Nationality and Borders Bill is going through one of its final readings in Parliament. And this is a bill that will allow people's citizenships to to be stripped secretly um, just because the Home Secretary believes that, you know, um, you're not conducive to the public good. And then you might never know the reason for that because it will say on national security grounds, we can't tell you. So when you have real ramifications that people can lose their citizenship, mm-hmm. then it's it's no kind of like small matter that this British values narrative that came out of the Trojan horse affair, which was a lie, mm-hmm. you know, it, what that really tells us is that like, for no reason, people of colour in this country are being punished mm-hmm. simply to uphold like a really oppressive 
regime and to, and to make sure that nobody's allowed to dissent and protest because that's ultimately it, right? You are not allowed to dissent or protest against the government because if you do, well, hang on, are you running, are you, are you running contrary to British values here? Like, do you not, are you, you know, are you saying that you are against what Britain stands for when you're actually saying what I'm for is justice and what I'm seeing is injustice? So yeah, it's, it's absolutely, to me, it's just infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I just think like, it is it is infuriating I, I just think also like the level of exhaustion but you know I, I it's because it is that I feel like it's something that I've grown up with I now have children and I think you know how am I meant to protect them you know with everything that's kind of out there and, and, and the direction it's headed but but obviously you know just bringing it back and how important it is that an individual level that yeah we, we're challenging it and you know obviously the, the book that you've written tangled in terror you know that is um it's it's not obviously a, a starting point it's almost in a in kind of this whole uh I just don't know like uh journey of where we're at you know it's just a really crucial point I think and, and it's so important you know to at least be having these conversations and we are approaching um the end of the, the the first half of the show. So we are in the studio with Sahoma Mansour Khan, who is the author of Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. Um, so you will join us um, in a few moments after the break, and we'll talk a lot more about um, some of these themes and um, just a little bit more about, you know, Sahoma's kind of activism and, and hopefully hopes for the future. So join us in a few moments. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Book Club Show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imran Mahmood. And on today's show, we are joined in the studio by Sahema Mansour Khan, who is a writer, poet, educator, and activist. Um, now, what we are going to continue, obviously, our conversation um, about the book and some other themes as well. Um, but before that, I just did want to ask Sahema, you know, how does your faith kind of play a role in, you know, what you're doing? You know, obviously you've written this book and you're, you're kind of challenging... Um, you know, um, I guess the problems out there in society, but but what role does your faith play in that? Every role, like I would say there is no, I would not be doing this if I was not Muslim. For me, like, the, you know, even just writing this book, it was like, should I, should I bother, should I not? And I think, you know, it comes back to really simple things like with whatever Allah has gifted you with, whatever skills you have, whatever kind of resources you have, we have to use them, right? Like, um, I always think of the ayah, you know, um, I'll won't try and say the Arabic, but you know, just uh, oh, you who believe, stand up firmly for justice as witnesses to Allah, whether it's against yourself, your kin, your parents, rich or poor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think about the fact that literally, you know, doing justice is incumbent upon us, no matter how kind of difficult, how uncomfortable, how awkward. And we're living in a time when it is quite uncomfortable and awkward to do justice, right? To speak about justice because you that you might be punished for it, you might be kind of reprimanded, you might be isolated. So that really inspires me. And the other thing is, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, how do you how do you stay optimistic, right? Like we're living in such difficult and dark times and we see so much oppression across the world. How do you have optimism? And so, I mean, even into the, the opening of the conclusion of this book, Tangled in Terror, I, I start with um, the opening ayah of um, Surah Falak. And I say, you know, why would, we've got a God, we've got a creator who says to us, say I seek refuge in the, um, say I seek refuge in the Lord of the daybreak, right? Like, what does that mean? That the, the, the day will break is the kind of message I get from that, that actually, no matter kind of how difficult and how long this night may seem, this darkness, the day will break. And that's by Allah's will. It's with our effort, but it's by Allah's will. And I think that's, for me, that's the thing that drives me when it comes to, you know, what you've asked. It's that it's ultimately not up to us, right? Like we struggle and that's, I, I, would, I think the job upon us, the duty upon us is to resist, is to struggle, is to speak back. But actually the, the, the ending of the oppression, that's in God's hands. And I think that for me is a really hopeful and reassuring thing because it means that the onus is on us to only do what we can, right? To do what, what is possible for us to do. Um, but the, the value of what we do doesn't rest in whether or not we actually end every tyranny on this earth because that's, that's in Allah's hands. So yeah, to me actually that, you know, Islam is the thing that makes it possible to have hope, makes it possible to resist, makes it, and it makes it worthwhile because I mean, what is the point of being on this earth in these times if we're simply just going to look away and close our eyes? And I, and I do believe, you know, if we think we're accountable, that one day I'm going to stand before God and kind of have to answer for what I've seen and what I witnessed here, then actually it's also a really scary and urgent matter. It's not just something that's kind of like, oh, you know, my faith inspires me. It's like, this is this is literally like, you know, probably one of the most important questions of our, of our lives. Like, what will we do with what we see? 
how we respond to it. So yes, it, it, a lot is the answer. Yeah. No, thank you for, for sharing that. And it's so true. And I think that's one of the things you, we, we only have to look back at prophetic stories and, and you know, this idea of standing up to the oppressor and, and that's, you know, seeking justice is such a, a vital part of being human almost, right? And because obviously injustice to some extent, you know, is kind of touch upon what you said, well, and tyr tyranny that it's always been almost part and parcel of, of what the dunya is, you know, and, and, and I guess that's, it's kind of discerning and, and, and making those intentions. So yeah. I know that's amazing. Thank you. And, and I mean, you touched upon it already, you know, this idea of, of, of resistance and uh, maybe just going a bit, a bit more deeper into that, you know, we are obviously in a moment of yes we, we want to be hopeful but you know increasing hostile environment you know in terms of you know and obviously i'm talking about uk specifically because that's where we're based mm -hmm. so what you know does active resistance look like is it you know what you mentioned about just you know speaking up or, or is there anything else you know that yeah, people i think it's a really again this is like one of the difficult questions right and this is something that i also asked so in writing the book i got to interview a lot of people and a lot of these people really inspire me because they are doing what I would call active resistance. And so these are people who, you know, have a lot of them have been detained. Some, you know, sometimes it's like in Guantanamo Bay. Sometimes it's like in the UK somewhere. Sometimes it's just overnight in a prison, but they've been detained without charge, without trial. These are people who have kind of had their entire lives like turned upside down, you know, people whose homes have been raided, whose children have PTSD, people who've been through the real extremities of they've faced the violence of the state and they've had no accountability. They've see, had no recourse to justice. Nobody will kind of touch their cases or help them. And the reason I mentioned that when you're asking what active resistance looks like is that actually their ability to persevere, to me, that is resistance. Their ability to come back from that kind of, um, that kind of just oppression and that kind of violence and to say i still believe that life is worth fighting for i still believe that we, we can demand justice even though i've never seen it i've never experienced it that i find really inspiring and i think that's a type of active resistance um you know persevering continuing to reveal the the lies the injustices you know even like i mentioned earlier the re the review into um prevent the people's review i think even though it can feel like we've just had this conversation about prevent so so much it's so overdone i think it still matters to keep kind of keep not not give up because i think in a way um it's like a war of attrition that we're in right that actually i think the expectation is we'll just give up we'll just shut up we'll just get tired because it is so tiring and actually so perseverance i think is a type of active resistance mm -hmm. and one of the calls to action that i make in the book is that actually i say to people look there's so many things that feel too big for any of us to do we all have lives we're all busy but one thing that we can all do is think really carefully about the language that we use. And I think when it comes to Islamophobia in particular, something I would ask everyone to do is be really curious about the words that we use to describe things. And in the book, I never use the word terror or terrorism without using quotations, because I actually think we can't just accept the terms of kind of governments and states who call, you know, individual perpetrators who um, commit acts of violence terrorists, but call themselves when they deport, deny, detain, whatever, murder, invade, they don't call that violence, they don't call that terror. And so simple things like that do matter, like thinking about the language that we use, because that kind of seeps into the ways that we understand the world. And it seeps into, more importantly, the ways that the people that we talk to understand the world. So if you refuse to adhere to the language of the status quo and you instead start using other language, you actually kind of raise questions and disrupt um, the kind of straightforward narratives people might have in their heads. So mm -hmm. I think that's something that like all of us can do. And, and another thing that I think active resistance looks like is obviously direct kind of actions, like we must demand the repeal of certain pieces of legislation. But importantly, I think we have to make connections in the sense that it's and one of the really important things for me when it comes to understanding Islamophobia is that our the end goal, the horizon for us cannot simply be, for example, once prevent and counter extremism measures are repealed, job done, Islamophobia over. No, because A, this is a global type of violence. You know, this is really Islamophobia is just imperialism, in other words. Mm -hmm. So until our siblings across the globe are free from violence, then, you know, that's not the end. But secondly, that it can't only be limited to the the kind of the 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 ways that um, kind of disproportionately harm Muslims. If we realize that prevent is bad, for example, we have to realize that any preemptive form of policing that says that a crime is associated with a certain type of person is unjust. And so we have to actually start questioning and being against and asking for the repeal of any stop and search laws, right? Any type of surveillance, any type of injustice. And I think that's something that can happen again, as you said earlier, um, Imran, like in the conversations that we have with our own colleagues, peers, friends, families, and those things, you know, they, they spread and they go wider and wider and, and shifting the conversation is such an important part of shifting anything, you know, no major kind of change in history has happened without people just changing the ways they understand it. Because when enough people decide, 
actually, this is not okay, this is unacceptable, then you start seeing the material reaction and the reflection and reality. And if those people who face that extremity of straight state violence can persevere and can do that and can believe every day that it's worth doing, then I think those of us who haven't ex experienced those extremities must also be responsible for doing that. And that, to me, those things together are what active resistance could look like. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, what you said is quite vital in terms of, you know, specifically with, with language, because, mm. I've, you know, I guess, you know, it's something, you know, I think about and, you know, you see, we see it in the media, right, that they, they use speech marks as soon as they um, use the word, I don't know, Palestinian struggle, and you mm. might find the word struggle in, you know, and, and it's really interesting, you're right, to almost subvert that and say, actually, that, you know, we, we, we have an ownership of, of language as much as anybody else and, and really questioning it. And, and yeah, I guess everything you said in terms of, you know, perseverance and, and all of those things, because yeah, I think maybe in my mind, to me, even when I asked the question, I was thinking, yeah, you know, what's active resistance look like? What do we have to do? And, and, you know, but actually you're right. It's sometimes it's continuing to exist despite, I guess, everything that's being kind of, you're being bombarded with and then you're being attacked with. And, and, you know, even in terms of the, the word violence, you know, we violence doesn't, always it's not just physical I mean there's so much else that is at play and in terms of how those things happen so no for sure that's that, that's definitely you know a lot to a lot to think about um I guess one of the other things is you know another kind of chapter um in your uh, book Tangled in Terror and I know we touched upon a little bit already in terms of your you know your faith as a Muslim etc but I guess I'm thinking more specifically you know this idea of being the other, right? Because that's how we're always constantly presented as people of colour. Um, and there's been, you know, whole conversations for years and years about integration and and actually, you know, even to assimilate to an extent to be expect, um, accepted. Um, how has that played out for you maybe on a on a personal level, if you're kind of comfortable sharing that? I mean, that yeah, yeah. Well, I actually think this really links to what you just said a second ago as well, and the sense of, you know, you know what we were just saying about like perseverance, that being a form of resistance, because I think as Muslims, one of the kind of maybe more subtle roots in which we've seen kind of, um, you know, you just said there's violences of different types, right? I think one of the things that we've seen is there has been an active attempt to co-opt what Islam is. And I don't mean that in a way that's like to sound really conspiratorial, but I mean that in the sense as simple as I remember growing up, one of the bi like biggest refrains that I ever heard was Islam means peace. Islam means peace. Islam means peace. Now, you know, Islam does not mean peace, right? First off, like it means submission to submit mm. to Allah. But second off, why did we feel the need to define Islam only in relation to the violence that is assumed to be attached to it? To me, that already is a concession that says that we will define Islam on the terms of the oppressors. We will we will start changing the narrative about what Islam really is to basically, like you said, be more acceptable, to be more palatable, to um, you know, uh, not not raise questions, not make people feel uncomfortable. And my point isn't that like, oh, we, we always need to be, be provocative. My point is actually more that the ways that I've seen Islamophobia play out at, on us as Muslims is often really overlooked. I think we often talk about Islamophobia only in terms of like the racism. But one of the things that I, I try and place centrally in this book is that secularism is not just this idea of like an objective, neutral, you know, separation of state and church, but that actually secularism is a part of colonialism and it's an invented reality is is this idea and you can and you know I, and i quote and trace many like kind of historical sources when i do this in the book but in brief that this idea that um you know part of modernity is making religion something personal about private conviction rather than something public was actually a, a geopolitical kind of tool that was used by european states because they didn't want the church to have so much influence at the same time they were sending missionaries across the world to use, you know, religion as a way to get a hold in, in other nations and as a way to kind of actually spread their imperialist conquests. So you have this contradiction that secularism was never what people kind of claim that it was. But secondly, that Europe has always said that it's modernity, the thing that makes it superior to the rest of the world, is both the fact that apparently it's, you know, secular, but also that it has this Christian heritage. And so, you, you know, one of the people that I quote is a, a, a colonizer, um, who says, um, you know, he wrote, uh, this is back in the 1800s, he writes that, you know, when you look at Christians in the East, quote unquote, he's talking about kind of like, um, you know, Egypt, um, he says that, you know, the problem with the Christianity there is that it's been stagnated because it's been tainted by the influence of the Orientals, the, in other words, you know, the, the Muslims and the Jewish people around. And I think that's fascinating because what it really says is that 
part of how Islam has always been seen is not just that, you know, where um, backwards barbaric, patriarchal, etc., but that, that our religion itself, our beliefs themselves are unsuitable and unfit for modernity. And, and that translates directly onto us right now. And that translates and has such direct consequences on our Iman, on our actual faith, because what we're being told through these messagings, you know, through these Islamophobic kind of narratives and ideas is that Islam is basically unsuitable for these times that if you if you genuinely believe there is a creator and you are created that's embarrassing you cannot simultaneously believe that and be intelligent you cannot simultaneously believe that and be you know british a modern subject uh you know a citizen whatever else so the impact on that on a personal level i think we all can think about the ways that maybe we have tried to kind of make Islam seem more palatable, whether that's in a conversation with a colleague, with a friend, whether it's at school, whether it's feeling shame about what we actually believe, whether it's feeling that I need to play down, you know, oh, I'm not going to pray, I'm just going to, I'll just be five minutes, like I'm just, yeah, I'll be back in a sec. And I think those are all actually really subtle and, and sinister impacts of Islamophobia on us as Muslim. And they're really hidden because I think we ourselves find it difficult to talk about because we don't basically it's not seen as a legitimate type of violence right because we live in this context it's not legitimate to say the most violent impact on me of islamophobia has been the impact on my iman and the, and, and this has broader consequences i mean i'll wrap up in a second but i just feel like there's so much to say about this because the impact is also that the conversations that we have in our masjids in our madrasas they also end up being on the terms of the western states idea of islam so we start having all our conversations about hey look how great you know muslim contribution has been mm. to the west look we were scientists we were alchemists we were mathematicians but why is it that the conversations we're having to have are about kind of proving we're intellectual we're intelligent we're scientific that's only because there's a narrative that exists that says we are not and it makes me it really breaks my heart because i feel like what conversations could we be having about islam if it was on our own terms you know it wouldn't always be about proving oh muslim women have rights muslim women have rights we also have rights. we'd be able to have much more interesting nuanced deliberate conversations about the things we want to ask the questions we have rather than simply oh can we kind of prove that islam isn't backwards can we prove that we are as good as and so to me that those are the deepest repercussions that i see and i you know i do a lot of poetry workshops in school with kids and oftentimes when i work with muslim kids they're the things that break my heart because i see that the poems that they could write they could they could write about anything are not the poems they get to write because the poems they get to write instead end up being really about trying to prove I'm just like you. I deserve humanity. I deserve value. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not sexist. I'm not X, Y, Z. And that I actually think to me is one of the most painful parts of Islamophobia that is one of the most under talked about. Um, and, and that's something that I was really kind of passionate to include in this book. Yeah. And, you know, it's even making me really think as well, because, you know, for how long and how many of us have probably went through a phase of internalizing all those things, right? Because it was, it was like this big, massive machine, you know, like, you know, you were up against the, you know, you were having to prove your worth and your humanity, et cetera. And, and obviously the, the poem that you won, um, the, the poetry sample kind of touched upon that as well. And, and, you know, and, and I guess essentially what you're, you know, what you've kind of, I guess, articulated really well is, the distraction right the distraction mm. this is all causing where we can't even live how we can't just just be right we just can't be because we're constantly feeling like we, we have to do all these things and mm. and i guess maybe that's why you know the, the book tango on the terror is so important because for me i guess i'm thinking i'm so glad sahim has done the hard work right <laughs> she's kind of articulated something really well and really challenging these things and maybe now i, I can have a chance my children can have a chance to say look you know we we've that we, we, we're not going to learn, we, I spend all that energy disproving something, mm. you know, that we're just going to talk about things. I mean, same with you. I, you know, I've sometimes worked with um, young people, uh, um, Muslim specifically, and, mm. and just Muslim women and just saying to them, look, just write what you want to write, mm. you know. And, and I remember the last project I did, it was very much saying, if there's one story you could share with the world, what would it be? Like, forget everything for a moment, even though, of course, that's hard to do. But, you know, and I think it is, it's about creating those platforms and opportunities, you know, for yeah. us to be able to talk about those things. Um, and, and, and I guess just kind of moving a little bit forward again in terms of, um, now I liked the, the kind of one of the chapters, I'm, I'm literally going to read it word for word, which is the feminist and queer friendly West, question mark, the patriarchal rest, question mark, which I love the fact the chapter is just like two questions, but I guess <laughs> what I wanted to ask, right, was um, the... There's definitely a selective amnesia, right, when it comes to the West, and it, it does, you know, portray itself as being, you know, more progressive, etc. And how everybody else, unless in our situation or you know specific to us, we're, we're the opposite. Like you said, you know, backward or barbaric or however it's, uh, you know, kind of um, presented. 
Now, what is the real kind of truth behind that narrative? You know, if you go specific to that chapter and, and what you kind of talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess so. Even raising those questions of the title of the chapter, I'm I'm, I'm trying to make people think it's le it's less about saying, you know, something I'm interested in is that I think it's actually less about saying what is the truth, you know, like what is the reality, and more about saying why why despite whatever the truth may be does that narrative prevail and the reason i say that is that because that narrative hides so much violence and it protects so many beneficiaries so we just go with a really basic example right which is that you know um the west is the place for women's rights and that you know women have so much freedom here and uh, you know everybody everybody comes you know all women need to come to the west to be free especially um muslims um you just look at a simple reality, right? Like the fact that across so many European countries, um, there are bans on the clothes that women can wear to be in public spaces, right? These are sometimes they're not directly niqab and hijab bans, but in other words, they are. The reality of that means the impact of that is that Muslim women, whether or not you do wear niqab or hijab, you over, you are hyper visible when you go into public space. That's not a great start to trying to feel super free and super safe. But secondly, that if you do wear an item of clothing that is banned, the West says you are not allowed to dress as you want to. We're feminists here, but you are not allowed to dress as you want to. And you are not allowed to participate in the public space, even though we say that as the West, this is the place where women can participate in public. So you see these immediate contradictions. And then you have like really, you know, other obvious things like you've got um in the uk you have yarl's wood detention center which you know for years has been notorious for the fact that um women and children asylum seeking um people are held here in absolutely disgusting disgraceful conditions um you know human rights violated at every step um mistreated and abused by prison guards and again this is in the home of apparently the most progressive liberating place you can come so the question becomes for who for who for which women is this really a, a liberatory space who of us are allowed to feel um you know free and i think the question then becomes about freedom as well because i think actually one of the really interesting things i mean there's an amazing book by sahar gumkor um where she actually i love the way that she just phrases this she kind of says that one of the things that the, especially the specter of like a muslim woman who covers her body the reason that's so scary and threatening and cause of so much anxiety in the West is that actually what we're saying, in other words, is that um, actually, you know what, we're OK, like our, we're just going to define freedom on our own terms. We, we don't need the freedom that you're trying to shove down our throats. And she sort of says that is actually um, what's the word she uses? I love what she says. She's like, that is like unacceptable. And it's so like um, just it's so difficult to swallow that then you have to be punished you have to be punished for that right that's not acceptable for you to say that you want freedom on other terms than what we've said is the most important and best version of freedom you can have mm -hmm. so i think the reason i'm talking about all of this and, and and like to answer that question of like what's the truth of the narrative is that the truth is that the that's, this is just completely like a made up lie but it's a lie made up because it it has beneficiaries states can then continue to force us to do things that are really violent but it can say no 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 this is freedom this is progress this is making you feel better um and you know i wanted to talk about homophobia as well and, and wanted to talk about kind of this idea that the west is queer friendly because i think that's one of the increasing narratives that we see right that like muslims are the source of kind of all um, oppression for queer people but you know but you know the west is like super super um safe and great to be in and i just thought like a really obvious example is the fact that Every single day, there are people who seek asylum in the UK because the countries that they are um, fleeing have laws that were usually put in place by the Brit British, you know, uh, empire that say that, you know, homosexuality is illegal or there are these X, Y, Z punishments. And they come to the UK seeking, um, you know, refuge. And the UK says, no, and let's deport you back to that place where your human rights will be violated according to, you know, UN and EU conventions and that kind of thing. And so regardless of not like I'm not even talking about Muslims for a second here, all I'm saying is that the direct contradiction between what the West says and then what it does. And so how can you say that, hey, like we're LGBTQ friendly, but at the same time, we literally deport <laughs> queer people just who aren't white. And ultimately, what you see is that all of this is re it's really just about race. It's about whiteness. It's that it's, you know, the feminist and queer friendly West. And we're talking about whiteness when it's a narrative that means that we can say people of color deserve continual persecution and surveillance because they do not uphold um, the values that we apparently say we do uphold. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, there's so much more. I mean, that chapter I, I found so hard to try and make it succinct because this is absolutely like, you know, central. One of the one of the things I think about a lot is that the way that Islam is marked as being different in the West 
is not what you'd think. It's not because it's like, oh, Muslims are religious and we're not. That That's actually secondary, I would say, to the idea that Muslims are sexist and we are not. That actually seems to be the biggest kind of narrative difference about Muslims. And not and even that came up so much throughout that Trojan Horse pod, podcast and even the rebuttals to it and the reactions to it. And it seems to be this ever kind of um, this thing that haunts that we kind of always are you know, and, and in that, in that, Muslim women just are silenced, right? Where there's no space for us to speak and get to say, well, hang on, are we allowed to like give our two cents on this? And I would say actually one of the biggest kind of, for me, painful consequences of that as well is that we don't get to say like any of the complicated truths. We don't get to say that, well, actually maybe it's true that I experienced, uh, you know, racism, Islamophobia and sexism from a wider society. And maybe I also do experience sexism from Muslim people because that might that might also exist because I live in a sexist world. Because as soon as you say that, that's gonna be weaponized against you. And it'll be like, oh, see, we knew you little patriarchal. And so then where does that leave Muslim women? What it actually means is that the, the Western states that say they wanna save us actually collude in keeping us silent because they're saying, well, actually no you don't get to speak because as soon as you speak we'll just use that to say well, let's criminalize your community further so i feel like muslim women are the ones who really lose. you know the most marginalized muslim women are the ones who lose out the most because nobody actually cares about us and that's from you know an apparently feminist west yeah yeah absolutely and it's so it, it is and it's, it's difficult isn't it being being in that space and being i guess whether you're visible visibly muslim or not but just having that identity in itself is i guess it's <laughs> it's yeah, that existence is brought into question. And but then again, you know, just coming back to you know the things that you're saying in terms of how um the West is kind of presenting itself, but then what we can do, you know, ourselves in terms of you know the, the work that we do, the conversations we're having, um, you know, and, and the platforms, I guess, that we create for each other and just making sure that we, we've got that supportive structure, at least, you know, um on a on an intimate grassroots level, I guess it's really important. And you know, inshallah, we can kind of build build on that. Um we have you know reach the um, end of um, the show and I just very, very quickly wanted to say where can um, our listeners um, get a hold a copy of, of um, Tangled in Terror? So you can visit the Pluto Press website but you can just google Tangled in Terror you should be able to get it from any book retailers and you can even pop into your local bookstore and if they don't have it ask them to order it in that would be awesome mm. and if anybody wants to have any more conversations about the book I'd love to you know please email me um, my website is just sahima.com so yeah please I'd love to have more conversations about the book. Fantastic. And we'd definitely love to have you back on, you know, inshallah in the future as well. But thank you so much, um, Sahim. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And, and thank you for, for all your work as well. Um, so that was Sahim Mansur Khan. We were talking about Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. Um, and please, obviously, yeah, get yourselves a copy of the book and start having conversations and, and making that difference, inshallah. And I will be back in a couple of weeks um, with um, a new book and inshallah, um, a new author. So, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.